The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Well, take your Bibles, please, again, the book of Matthew in chapter 28, Matthew and chapter 28, and we'll read from verse 16 to verse number 20. Just a reminder, there's a little note sheet in your bulletin there. You can follow along with that if you would like to, and there's a space to make some notes if you'd like to do that as well. Matthew 28, and we'll read from verse 16 down to the end. The word of God says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's again ask for God's blessing, shall we? Loving Father, again, as we come this morning with the word of the living God open before us, Father, we pray that you would speak. Speak deep into the heart and the mind and the soul of every single one of us. Father, may we see Jesus. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, open the eyes of our understanding to hear what you would say to each one of us. Father, reprove those who need to be reproved. Rebuke and correct Father, we pray also that you would comfort and bind up and heal and pour in the healing balm as we hear the word of God. Father, we pray that it would be the spirit of God that speaks to every heart, that teaches us the truth, that calls us to obedience to that truth. Father, we ask you for your blessing. We plead with you, O God, that you would speak this morning. Father, we thank you for the tremendous gift of your word. And we pray, O oh God, that we would be a people who are known for their love for each other, their love, our love for you, and our faithfulness to the word of the living God. And Father, we seek these things, and we ask you for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Making disciples happens in the narrow context of the individual believer's relationship with the Lord, and with the wider context of the church of Jesus Christ. Our passage, as we saw two weeks ago, is usually titled the Great Commission. But if we look closely, we'll see that the Great Commission is set into the context of a relationship with Christ our Lord. In our text, we can see that Jesus or the disciples are either doing or receiving the action in relation to each other. We see how the disciples went to Galilee to 
to the mountain which Jesus directed them. We see in verse 17, they saw him. In verse 17 again, they worshipped him. And verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority and so on. And then he makes a command to them. So everything that's happening in the text is happening from Christ to the disciples. There is a relationship there. Fulfilling the Great Commission is an act of both obedience and worship toward the Lord Jesus. Our ongoing actions and attitudes towards Christ and our receiving of His actions toward us describes our relationship with Him. Christ did not save us, brothers and sisters, to simply do the work of Christianity. Neither did Christ save us to sit back and do nothing other than enjoy his fellowship as sweet as it certainly is. But from sweet, joyful fellowship and relationship with Christ, the call to action for Christ rises and it becomes as much our joy in doing for and with Christ is it as it is our joy in being with Jesus Christ. We'll never have the motivation. We'll never have the strength. We'll never have the zeal or the joy to make disciples if we are not, first of all, above all else, in an intimate, growing, living relationship with Christ above all. Our own unique, intimate relationship with Christ in the context of a local church is the powerful tool that God uses to naturally attract and draw others to Christ. Now, last time that we looked at this, we considered the Lord's relationship to his disciples. And just to recap there, notice Christ comes near to his disciples. Secondly, Christ communes with his disciples. He speaks to them. Thirdly, Christ has stated his authority over his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Fourthly, Christ commands his disciples. He commanded us as we go to make disciples of all nations, to teach them, to baptize them, and so on. And fifthly, the last one there, Christ promises his continual abiding with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us, his disciples. Now, what we do today is look at the disciples' relationship to the Lord, our response to all the things that Christ has done and is doing for us in the text. Now, I didn't have time to go and look at every single one, so what I've done is pick two, I think, the most key and most important ones out of the text. And if you have your note sheet there, you can see, first of all, the disciples obey Christ, their master, and secondly, the disciples worship Christ, their Lord. Now, what you notice in verse 16, the Bible says that they went to the mountain he had appointed. That was an act of obedience and response to him as he made that appointment, that command. Then notice in verse number 19, Jesus commands them that going, they are to make disciples, baptizing and teaching and so on. Now, if you flipped over to Luke 24, it's a a parallel passage because it describes the last things Jesus said to his disciples before he returned to glory. And what he did there was he promised them that power would come upon them when the Spirit of God came on them. But he also commanded them to go back into Jerusalem 
and wait there until the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them. And we see in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, you can look there, and you see the Holy Spirit coming on them in power, and they go out into the streets, and they're preaching the gospel in the language of all the nations that are gathered there. And on through the book of Acts, from chapter 2 all the way, continuing past chapter 28, we see the disciples, the 11 disciples, and Barnabas, and Paul, and others, as they're added to the list, they're going on in continual obedience to God's command to go and make disciples. They obeyed Christ, making disciples as they were going. And here's the point, okay? Obedience to God marks the disciples' life. Obedience displays the disciples' relationship with their Lord. To obey simply means to place His wishes, His commands, and His desires above ours. It's the bending of our will. It's the submitting of ourselves to God's will. It's striving to conform my will, my thinking, with the one whom I'm serving. The reason parents must teach their children to obey is so that they will learn what it means to obey their teachers, to obey their employers, to obey the police, the government officials, and so on. But above all else, to obey God. The disciples obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the, what marked them. It's like having a business. And you know, when I was first, I might have told you this already, but I'm famous for repeating stories, but that's okay. I first got working in carpentry, and I had this German boss named John, and, and he would tell me that I needed to do this. And usually it meant carrying heavy loads of uh, what you call timber, we call lumber, from high spots on the hill down to the bottom of the hill, or even worse, from the bottom of the hill all the way up to the top. And so while they're working away nailing together the frames, I would be carrying timber back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I always had a better idea. Whatever he told me to do, I'd say, well, you know, that's a great idea, John, but why don't we do this instead? And finally, in frustration, my boss looked at me and said, you know, you've always got another idea. I wasn't a very good apprentice for the first little while until I got that great talking to after work one day about the need to obey, the need to submit my will to his. He was the master carpenter. I was the teenage apprentice who didn't know anything. I barely knew a two-by-four from a two-by-six. And got those confused more than once, don't worry. And uh, you know what? He said, you don't know what it means to do as you're told. And a disciple, one who claims to follow Jesus Christ, must be marked by obedience to Christ because we cannot be disciples of Christ if we are refusing to obey and submit our will to His will. The call to follow Christ is a command that's to be obeyed. The call to go and where he sends us is commands to be obeyed. And the mark of a disciple's life is obedience to their Lord. But this moment on the mountain was not the beginning of their life of obedience to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus had called them to follow him. In Matthew 4.15, he called Simon and Andrew to follow him and they obeyed. They turned around, they put down their nets into the boat, they stopped out of the boat and walked across the shore and they went up behind Jesus. The Bible says in Matthew 4, 21, six verses later, he passes by James and John and they're in there, they're mending their nets or they were casting the nets into the shallow parts of the water and he calls them to follow him and they put down their nets, they left everything behind and they stepped up onto the road and they followed behind Jesus. 
In Matthew 9, verse 9, Jesus passes by a tax collector's booth. And there sits Matthew Levi, making his calculations. He is the lowest and most despised of all the social orders in Judaism. And he says, come follow me. And Matthew puts down his pen, pushes back the desk, steps out behind and follows Jesus. It's a life of obedience. In the book of Matthew, again, chapter 10, Jesus sent them out to preach, to heal, to cleanse lepers, and so on. And in obedience to Christ, they went out and they obeyed the command that God gave them. In Matthew 16, Jesus told them, he sat them down and said, Listen, the life of a disciple is to deny yourself. That means to put my will underneath his will. It's to put aside my desires for his desires. It's to submit myself to his lordship and his obedience. The life of a disciple in Matthew 16 is taking up our cross and following Christ. That's the disciple's life. It's losing our life for Jesus' sake. That's the disciple's life. And this is the challenge for us. Discipleship is a relationship between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the tragedies of American television, uh, television anywhere, it doesn't matter if it's American or not, is you hear the phrase, the Lord. And sadly, it, it comes across, it rolls off the tongue, and it means next to nothing. Usually it's part of a joke or part of a punchline. And we fail to realize what the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ really is. He is our Lord. As we said two weeks ago, He's an authority over us. He is our Lord. Discipleship is about our submission and obedience to Christ. And just as He called the twelve disciples to obey Him, so also Christ calls us to obedience. The gospel is preached, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith. What does that mean? It means faith that is displayed by obedience to Christ. In faith, I trust Christ and in trusting Him, I do as He asks. To use the illustration of construction again, when my boss says, put the two-by-fours over there and the plywood over there, I trust him that he knows what he's going to do with them, and I do as he asks rather than trying to outthink him and put them where he doesn't want them, which just frustrates him. It's exactly the same for us. It's discipleship is obeying Christ even when we can't see the why or the what or the wherefore. We don't understand all the what Christ is doing. And sometimes Christ's leading takes us in places that we didn't expect, we didn't anticipate, and we weren't looking for. I know from personal experience in a ministry for a number of years, going in the wrong direction. My heart's desire to serve the Lord. My heart's pleading was to see people saved and the church built up. But I was steadily going in the wrong direction. And it wound up being the most frustrating thing. But yet out of it, God in grace taught me so much about how to be a pastor. And I've still got heaps to learn, obviously. But you know what? It's obedience to Christ. It's seeing what He's doing and conforming our will to His, not trying to get Him to do what we want. Oh, pause for a second here. How often does our prayer life become trying to get God to do what we want? as opposed to trying to conform my will to His in submission to what He wants me to do. 
A disciple is one who is marked by obedience. The gospel is preached to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. The discipleship is a relationship of obedience to Christ. And the question is, are we obeying what Christ has called us to do? He called us in the simple commandments of the Lord simply to come and follow Him. To leave everything behind to follow Christ. To live by faith in Jesus Christ. I've been reading a little book, a Puritan fellow by the name of Thomas Manton wrote this little book called The Life of Faith. And if you know anything about the Puritans, you know they take one idea in the Scripture and they unpack it in about 300 different strands of thinking. And you just kind of go, wow, where did you get all that from? And it's a beautiful explanation of what it means to live by faith in Christ, trusting Him. To commit everything to Him. To, it's an idea of both assent, which we agree with what He says. We receive Christ by faith. We take Him as our own. We receive Him. Not like we receive a brightly packaged gift. Scratch that idea. It's the idea of receiving Him like we receive a visiting dignitary. I hate royalty explanations, but imagine the Queen walked in. We wouldn't walk up and go, Hey, Betty, how's it going? And shake her hand. The, 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 the security guys would have a few things to say about that. We step forward and we would probably bow or the ladies would do the curtsy thing. And we would receive her visit in a manner that's befitting her status as the Queen of England. We receive Christ in a manner befitting who He is as living God and Lord of all. Hence, my struggle with sometimes the modern presentation of the gospel as a brightly packaged gift that you can take or receive. Jesus as your friend with a small f. Jesus as your mate. No, that's not what the scriptures mean when they talk about receiving Christ. We receive Him. We live by faith in Him. We live in continual repentance of sin. We're to be baptized in obedience to Christ. A disciple who refuses to submit and obey is simply not a disciple. Part of that conversation with my boss included the threat, a very real threat. If you don't start doing as you're told, you won't need to come to work anymore because I'll stop paying you and you'll stop showing up. In other words, you're fired if you don't start obeying. Does that mean that Christ kicks us out if we don't obey? No, that's not what it means. It means that the reality of who we are as disciples is not there. You cannot claim, brother and sister in Christ, you can't claim to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and live in continual refusal to submit and obey. The disciples went to where He appointed them. They had learned over the period of time that when Jesus sent them somewhere, they were to go. But there's more to it than that. Christ gave us commands that we're to obey he said in John 14, 21, listen, he says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In John 13, 35, he said, Love one another as I have loved you. What's he say? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for the other. So part of our, our life of obedience is a living love relationship with each other. I know you look around and go... 
Well, yeah, I don't know. No, I mean, look at the pastor, for goodness sakes. Who wants to love him? And look at some of the other people. You go, oh, I don't want to love them. I mean, they're not the most lovable people in the world. No, you missed the point. He who loves me will love them. Because we love Christ, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Matthew 5, 43 and 45, he said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know about you, but I find that a tough command to obey. Because my natural reaction, and there's the problem, my natural reaction is to you know, start reloading my ammo, start restocking my quiver with arrows when I see my enemies approaching. But Jesus said, no, no, no. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who are persecuting you. In loving our enemies is a command that we obey in Christ. And the benefit is, as that verse states, you will be sons of your Father in heaven. What does he mean? You get to be sons of God by loving your enemies? No. What he means is, the proof of the fact that we are sons and daughters of the living God is seeing the fact that we love our enemies. We submit to the commands of God and we love them. Because Christ loved them, because Christ died for them, just as surely as he died for you and I. In the last two commandments, you know well, Matthew 22, 38, or 37 to 39. Love your neighbor as yourself, and above all else, love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our relationship of discipleship to Christ is a relationship of faith that expresses itself in obedience and love. We trust Christ, and because we trust Him, we obey Him. We love Christ, and because we love Christ, we trust Him. And they work, they don't work one after the other, they work more like circular. So as we love Christ, we trust Him. And as we trust Him, we obey Him. And as we obey Him, we love Him. This keeps being in a, like a moving circle of emotions that are kind of wrapped together. But discipleship incorporates those ideas of faith, obedience, and love. But not only that, love is also the root of another mark of the disciples' relationship with the Lord. Notice in verse number 17 what it says next. They went to the mountain, verse 16, and when they saw him, verse 17, they worshipped him. Now that word in the Greek, proskuneo, means to fall down before. It means to prostrate oneself, to bow low. It means to humble oneself before the one we are worshipping as a mark of deference and respect for that one. But more fundamentally, true worship requires a relationship. We cannot truly worship one whom we do not know, whom we are striving to know. In other words, you can't know, you can't truly worship God if you don't want to know more about him and you don't know him even at all. Worship cannot be just a formulaic thing. Yeah, you can go through all the mechanics of that, but God is not glorified in that. Listen, the disciples knew something of the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us, that they heard him and followed his call. We thought about that. They watched him heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. They saw him performing signs and miracles and wonders. They listened to his teachings. They heard the parables. They listened to his disputes and relates back and forth with the Pharisees and the lawyers. They knew something of Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, and their master. They'd seen him 
in the boat, controlling the weather, calming storms with words. They had heard him call a dead man to life with three simple words, Lazarus, come forth. They'd heard it. They'd also heard Jesus predict his betrayal by one of themselves. They'd heard him predict his triple denial by Peter. They'd heard him predict about his sufferings at the hands of the scribes and the priests, his horrific death. But they'd also heard him talk about the fact that when he was raised again, he would go ahead of them into Galilee. And now coming close, standing on the mountain, I can just see it in my mind's eye. They're looking up at him. And as they see him and their, and their sight opens, and they see who it is. They immediately fall on their faces before him and they worship him. They bow down before him. What they had seen and heard and witnessed drew them to the conclusion that this is God in the flesh and He deserved to be worshipped. They knew the law and the history of their nation. They knew the terrible trouble that idolatry had left them in in years gone by as an exiled and conquered people in between the New Testaments, the two Testaments. Yet when they saw Him, they said, This one is truly God in the flesh. They worshipped Him. They were in a relationship as disciples with their Lord and their God. And even though some of them doubted or worshipped. Listen, as disciples of Christ, we are also in a relationship with Jesus. If you're here and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've heard Christ's call to follow. We've seen through the Scriptures and the eyes of faith, Jesus healing and cleansing and raising the dead. We've heard through the Scriptures and the ear of faith, Jesus speaking and teaching and explaining the Father to us. We know, brothers and sisters, the older we get, the more we know from experience and the rebuke of Scripture, the horror and the ugliness of our own sin. And my heart's prayer is for all of us that we're not just that we know the fact that we're sinners, but that we hate our sin. Just to pause for a second on that one point. Does your sin cause you to grieve? I think one of the struggles we have, and I know young people more than others have this struggle, of knowing whether they're truly saved or not because they seem to wrestle so much with their sin. My question is, if you wrestle with it, do you hate it? Do you hate the sin that you know that just tears apart and strains that relationship that you have with Christ? We've seen the horror and the ugliness of our own sin, and we hate that sin. We want to be free from it. But praise God, we've also seen the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ dying to save us. We know the gentle summons of the Holy Spirit deep within our hearts. I can still remember sitting in that bunk in the same place and that sense inside of me, come, come and obey, come and follow me. A gentle voice calling, the Spirit of God summoning me to call to follow Christ. We know that gentle summons. We who truly believe have been brought into a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ as surely as those 12 men were. And our, our 11 men, sorry. Our response to the risen Christ must be the same. It must be worship. And just as obedience that is pleasing to Christ is driven or must be driven by love, so also worship that is pleasing to the Lord is driven by love. It must be the expression, the outflow of our love for Christ. Yeah. 
We can go through the mechanics of worship. You can come into this church every week and you can sing the songs. You can come into this church and pray the prayers. You can open your Bible and run your eyes over the Scriptures. You can go through all the mechanics of worship. But God is not glorified by that. God is far more glorified by us when our worship of Him is driven by a heart that loves Christ, that desires Him above everything else. And the way it happens is we look in the Scriptures through the eye of faith. And we hear the testimony of the songs as they recount the experiences of great men and women of old who have walked with Christ for generations. And we hear that and it lifts our gaze and we see the loveliness of Christ. We see the beauty and the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a, there's a delight in Him. We'll talk more about how to fuel that in just a bit. Worship that is not driven by love does not glorify God. In fact, God condemned Israel in the Old Testament. They worshipped Him with their lips, but their heart was far from Him. So my question this morning as we sit here in this church, coming together as a people to worship is, where is your heart at, Christian? I'm not just asking you that, I'm asking myself. Where's my heart is it the desire, the longing, the deep longing of my heart to see Christ? Is it the deep longing of my heart to experience that relationship with Him, to hear His soft, gentle voice, to put my hand in the hand of the one that created the universe, the hand that was spiked to a cross and walk close with Him? Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And that wonderful expression, when we come alongside Christ and we fasten ourselves to Him, it isn't just fastened captive to Christ. We have the most intimate relationship as we're fastened together under that yoke and we walk side by side with Him. Brother and sister in Christ, if our worship is not driven by love for Christ, it does not honor and glorify God. God is far more glorified by us when our worship is driven by love. He is far more glorified when we worship because we delight in Him and we want to worship Him. So how can our worship, how can we worship the Lord from a heart of love for Him? We worship God out of love by desiring Him above all else. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's Psalm 37 verse 4. Our worship must begin with a heartfelt desire for Christ. But it also goes, we worship God from a heart of love by glorifying God in everything we do. Glorifying means to make His name great. So to make God's name big in everybody else's eyes as well as our own eyes. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The point here is not eating or drinking. Those are just very simple, mundane illustrations that Paul's doing. The point is this. Whatever you do, whether it's the great thing or the seemingly small and insignificant thing, if we do it to glorify God, then it is worship. 
The disciple of Christ in relationship with Christ lives their lives as an ongoing, unceasing expression of worship. Don't make the mistake. Uh, you hear it all the time in church circles and in church language. It's the worship part of the service. Then there's the preaching part of the service. And then there's the fellowship part of the service. That's a mistake. It's all worship. Every last little bit of it. Worship is a lifestyle of love lived to the glory of God. In terms of our everyday life, whether we're academics or professionals or tradespeople, whether we're lawyers or doctors or parents at home or engineers, when we do, when we live and work to glorify God, it is worship. But how do we do the whatever we do? How, how, do, how does that work? What does it look like? One of my own struggles with my own preaching is sometimes it's, it's very theoretical. We need to put hands and feet on what these things actually look like. How do we worship? How do we work, whether it's in an office or a school or wherever? How do we do it to glorify God? And I would say, number one, we refuse to violate God's ways of righteousness and holiness. No matter what everybody else in your circle is doing, no matter what everybody else is doing in your lunchroom, do it God's way. That takes resolve. It takes backbone. It takes a little bit of blood, sweat, and tears. No matter what everybody else is doing, we refuse to violate God's standards of holiness and righteousness. We seek, secondly, God's wisdom, help, and guidance and blessing. You're an engineer. Use that for example. Okay, Just pull it out of the air. How do we do it? We refuse to cut corners and break laws and change codes and, and change material standards and whatever else engineers do. We choose to do it in a way that God approves of. We do it without breaking the rules. We seek God's wisdom, help, guidance, and blessing. Even as a carpenter, I still remember having to do this really complex bit of trim work around the, in this old house we were restoring back in Victoria in Canada. I remember sitting there going, oh, I couldn't figure out how to do it. I remember I was working on my knees, because that's what we do a lot as carpenters. I thought, well, this is a great place to be. I'm on my knees, so I may as well pray while I'm down here. So I just started praying, Lord, I need to understand how to put this whole thing together. I still had to work. I still had to try hard. I still had to put effort into it. I still had to do what was necessary. But seeking God's help and God's wisdom and God's blessing in doing those things, that glorifies God. We do the whatever as an act of faith. We trust the Lord for the help that we just asked for. And we step out in faith and begin to work. We trust Him that our actions will in fact glorify Him. And finally, we give God credit for all the successes that we have. And that works the same whether you're an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or a mom at home or a businessman or you're retired or whatever your particular calling in life is. Pastor, financial planner, whatever. They all work together. It's a desire to glorify God in whatever we do. That's worship. In terms of church life, whether we set up chairs or play music or share the gospel, whether we visit the sick or help out with a kids program, whether we spend in hours in prayer before God, preaching sermons or serving as an elder or deacon, all those things in church life, they're all to be done to the glory of God. And the moment we step in and say, well, I'm going to do it to the glory of my name, now there's a problem. We're robbing God of his glory. 
That's no worship. To bring it back to the context of our text, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. God's command to make disciples as we're going through life is an example. It's an illustration. It's the summation, if you like, of all these different concepts. We've talked about relationship and love and obedience and worship. Going and making disciples in a way brings all those things together. You say, how's that? It's like this. Making disciples as we're going is loving obedience to Christ. It shows our discipleship relationship. Making disciples is loving neighbors as ourselves. We're desiring my neighbor to hear the gospel, to come into the same relationship of faith that we enjoy. Making disciples is loving our enemies by striving with God in prayer to see God change them into brothers and sisters and sharing the gospel with them. Making disciples of all nations is loving worship because it glorifies God in our sight, in the sight of our brothers and sisters, in the sight of our enemies and our neighbors. In a relationship of love for Christ, we obey Him. By making disciples for Him from all the nations, we go into the neighborhoods, across the street, or even around the world, if that's what God has called you to do. We make much of Christ in our everyday lives. These disciples, they came, they saw, they worshipped, they went back to Jerusalem, and when the time was right, they went out in obedience. Go, starting next Sunday through the book of Acts, the first couple of chapters, we're going to start unpacking what they were doing there. But those men went out and they obeyed and their obedience was an expression of worship to God because they were striving to glorify God as they proclaimed His name wherever they went. You see, it was obviously out preaching on the hilltops. No, Paul preached chained to Roman soldiers. He preached in his leather-working tent shop. They all preached wherever God sent them, God put them, and God placed them. We don't know the stories of the vast majority of the disciples. They just disappear into the church history. We know we hear bits and pieces. Uh, Thomas apparently went to India. We know the gospel was established there. They went out. They just carried the gospel wherever they went. And it was an expression of ongoing worship. But I want to wrap it up with this. How does it all start? Okay, what do we do? This is Sunday morning. 2019. It begins, brothers and sisters, with private worship between us and our Lord. Daily time spent with God in His Word, in prayer, and in meditation, seeking to know and deepen our knowledge and our love for Him. If it doesn't start there, there's a problem. Because already we're on the back foot. We haven't spent time with Christ to know Him, to deepen that love relationship with Him, to spend time with Him in solitude. It's got to start there. It's private worship. It continues through our daily routine. That's the practical side of it. I go to work. I interact with wife and kids and neighbors and colleagues. I must always be seeking to honor and glorify God in every moment of that day. It doesn't matter whether you're on the golf course or you're in the office, or on the job site, or wherever you are, the classroom, it's a desire to glorify God, to make His name known and great. And it, and it continues as we gather week by week for corporate public worship. I bring what I've learned of Christ in my private worship to my brothers and my sisters. I share what I've learned of Christ through ministry. You say, 
that's easy for you. You stand up there and share for 45 minutes to an hour. We're all sitting in the chair listening. What? How do we do it? What's well, the same way you do it as I do it? You go and you share one-on-one with one another. You share in small groups. You share in Bible study. You share in, in prayer meetings. You share as you have fellowship with the saints. If worship is just reduced down to our singing part and listening to me preach, we've missed so much of it. It's sharing what we've learned of Christ with each other. It's coming together. And as we sing and we lift up our hearts to God in prayer and we pray or as I'm preaching and you're responding in your heart to prayer as you're listening to me, it's pouring into that that time of worship, everything you've learned of Christ through the week. So it's got to start in the private worship. It's got to continue through the practical days of our lives, and it's got to come together as part of the finished part of our week. Or if you like the finish of one week and the start of another one, when we get together and we worship and we share what we've learned with Christ with each other, I express my God and His Son through prayer, through ministry, through fellowship, and even through the breaking of bread. We worship God in love for God by doing what pleases Him. We love the things He loves and we hate the things that He hates. By now the question is probably rising up in your mind, is this all left to me to do it on my own? And the answer is no. Someone shook their head. No. No, it's not. You know that. The Bible tells us, praise the Lord, it's not in our own strength. The disciples were to wait until the Spirit came upon them in power in Jerusalem. Then they were to go out and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because the Lord wanted to teach them obedience on another level, a different level, a higher level. And also to show them that the work of God is going to be done by His Spirit living and working in us and through us. Not only that, worship as we know from John 4 is this, the hour is coming, and Jesus told the woman at the well, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. It's the Spirit of God who gave us the truth of the Word of God inspired through men's writings. Brothers and sisters, if you see something that's called worship happening in a church and you pick up your Bible and you flip through it and you can't find where it's in there, if you, can't, if you find, in fact, it's contrary to what there, it's not worship. Tragically, we've seen in some church circles so many things ascribed to spirit-led worship that go in direct contradiction to what the Bible teaches. And you go, that cannot be Spirit-led worship because the Spirit of God will not lead us contrary to His own Word. So we're to worship in spirit and truth. The Spirit of God living in us gives the strength and the power and the enablement to live that life of obedience. So it's submitting my will to Christ's will and allowing His Spirit freedom putting aside the sin and the things that hinder us and slow us down, allow the Spirit of God to live in us and through us, to worship God through us, and to live that life of obedience through us. It's submission to Him. It's submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's worship in agreement with biblical truth and worship that's led and instructed and informed by the Spirit of God. To wrap it up, 
Back to where we started from. Making disciples happens in a narrow context of the individual believer's relationship to the Lord and the wider context of the corporate church. We call this the Great Commission. But as we've seen, the Great Commission is set into the context of our relationship with Christ as our Lord. We've seen that Jesus and the disciples were both doing or receiving the action in relation to each other. They describe our relationship with Him. I could say so much more about how they saw Him and they came and they worshipped. Even the phrase, but some doubted. love to unpack that and how that fits into the whole picture. But let's just stick with these two simple things. They obeyed and they worshipped. And then they were commanded to go. And that going out and making disciples is an expression of worship in every part. There is a task. It is yet unfinished. He gave it to us 2,019-odd, no, not that quite, 1,997 years ago, thereabouts, on outside of a uh, Galilee on top of a mountain. He told them, go and make disciples of all nations. There are nations living in our neighborhood that don't know Christ. In fact, the gospel and the church is shrinking as other faiths are building and gaining and pushing Brothers and sisters, there is a role left to us to fulfill. If your Christianity can be defined by simply what church you go to, there's a problem. If your Christianity can be defined by simply what you do on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week is yours to do with as you please, you miss the point. Our calling is a calling to love and obey and follow Christ 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not just an hour and a half, one day a week. It's a calling to go out, not just to come together. It's a calling to make Christ, not make Christ, to submit to Christ as Lord. To serve Him, to worship Him, to do it from a love for Him. That time... That private worship time is so important, it's so key, because it defines, it, it, it's the root part. It's that time with the Lord, just like marriage, right? You're not going to have a great marriage if you never spend time with your wife. You're not going to have a very good marriage if you never spend time speaking to your wife and sitting down the two of you and discussing and working together and talking together and growing in that intimacy. It just won't happen. And our relationship with the Lord demands that same time spent with Him one-on-one. -on -one. Not just prayer and reading, but also prayer, reading, and silence to allow Him to speak. Taking the words of Scripture and meditating on them and chewing over them and responding in prayer. That private worship is where it begins. And it begins to express itself as we relate to our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our co-workers. And it comes even more as we come together as the church to worship together. It's that relationship with Christ. And as we go out and preach the gospel, it's just a natural outflow of the relationship we already have with Jesus. We have an amazing Savior, don't we? Amen, we do. We as one who has called us to follow him and walk with him and take the message that he gave us and take it to the nations. We have that thing up on the before, from the nations to the nations for the glory of God. It's on your bulletin, I think. 
a little tagline we use from our church. What a tragedy. I say this very carefully. What a tragedy if it's simply a tagline on our bulletin but does not reflect what we are as a church. That would be the worst. It's got to be what we are, not just describe what we should be. May God help us, all of us, from the pastor to the back door, every single one of us to be living our lives in a relationship, a love relationship with Christ. And naturally overflows into telling others about the one who is a lover of our souls. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. And then we'll sing the benediction together. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you again. And Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the one who loved us even to the point of death, whose life was marked by obedience to his Father. And Father, we ask you, O God, as we stand here this morning, this church, this company of people, redeemed by His blood. Father, we pray that You would work in each one of us, that the Spirit of God would take the words of Scripture and apply them and press them deeply upon our hearts, that we would be changed from the inside out, that we would become living worshipers of the living God, taking the message of the gospel to the nations. Across the street, Father. Wherever we live, wherever we work, what circles we move in, Father, we pray that our lives of loving worship would overflow into loving witness for Him. Father, we pray that our lives of spoken witness for Christ would be accompanied by lives of worship and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would take those words the words of this text, the words of the scriptures we considered. And Father, you know every single person in this room. You know those, O God, who truly are your disciples. And you know those, Father, who have done a very good job, even deceive themselves that they are when they're not. Father God, I plead with you cry out to you, O God, that you would impress upon their heart the need for obedience, the need for full submission to Christ in every little thing. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, for the ones that are even yet doubting as the text described. Father, I pray that you would take and pull away from their eyes the things that are shielding them from seeing the glory of Christ. Lift their face, lift their chin, O God, to see Christ full on, to see the glory of the one risen from the dead, conquering sin and death, that their doubts might be dispelled and replaced by conviction and resolution. Father, for those who don't know you, and Father, they're here for one reason or another, but never intending to come and be called to a relationship with Christ. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God might whisper that soft, gentle voice 
deep in their hearts, calling them to obedience, calling them to faith in Christ, giving them the faith to believe. Father, I cry out to you that you would do a great work in this church. Father, revive us. Bring revival, O God, we pray that we might be changed, that the love that we have would be deepened and burning hot for you. The love we have for one another would become great and deep and strong, that the world will look on and know that we belong to Christ for the love that we have one for the other. Oh, Father, I pray that you would do a work, that you would pry deep into our hearts and loosen our grip on the sin, some sins that we are holding on to that are keeping us from the, the joy of a deep relationship with Christ. That those sins might be dug out and put away. Father, pry open our fingers. Father, in a deeper way, if necessary, take off our hands that we might put away sin and follow Jesus to the full. Father, the Lord Jesus speaking through John said that he hated those who were lukewarm. He would that we were cold or hot, but not lukewarm. Father, we do not wish to be lukewarm Christians. And I pray, O oh God, I pray that you would take every single one of us and you would light up and stoke up the fire Lean down, O oh God, and breathe deeply on that fire that it might be a roaring flame. The presence of the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit of God worked out in each of us. Greatly increase the visible manifestations of the Spirit of God in each one of us that we might bear the genuine fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness and self-control. Father, I pray that those that fruit, that singular fruit might be born in each of us, that our lives would be a living testimony to the power of God to change, the power of God to make that which is dead, to make it alive, to cause it to walk in newness of life. Father, I pray that you would work in every one of us, that we would, each of us, resolve to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to shoulder the burden of dying to sin and dying to self and dying to the world and step out behind Christ in obedience to him, follow wherever he leads. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O oh God, to do whatever is necessary in each of our lives that we might each be willing to lose our lives for Christ. That when the day comes and the challenge is made, whether we will live or die holding tight to Christ, we will choose to die. Father, I plead with you for a work. Father, like that persistent widow, we will not let go until you hear and answer. Oh God, we ask you these things and we plead with you in Jesus' name. Amen.